0: Hello and welcome to Evolving Enterprise. We'll talk to businesses here in the city of Johnstown, Cambria County, Pennsylvania, and surrounding areas. In particular, businesses that have been sustainable over multiple generations in this Rust Belt region by expanding their reach to outside territories, whether it be across neighboring counties, the tri-state area, the nation, or across the world. I'm your host, Russ O'Reilly, reporter for the Tribune Democrat. Now, let me introduce you to our guests today and give you some background for their story. Bill Pelagic built JWF Industries from his father's two-car garage weld repair shop 35 years ago. Bill's father, John, owned and operated a welding business, Johnny's Welding, outside of his full-time job with Johnstown's single largest employer, the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. In time, Johnstown would lose the steel industry, and Bill would also lose his father. In this episode, Bill talks about growing his business through those personal and economic losses. Today, JWF is a global manufacturer of metal products, operating out of some of the former Bethlehem Steel Corporation facilities in Johnstown, as well as newer locations in West Virginia and North Carolina. Over the years, JWF has grown beyond what those letters originally stood for, Johnstown Welding and Fabrication, as the company now manufactures metal products for national defense, energy, and commercial industries, and national and global markets, while also providing hundreds of jobs. So how I started the business was it wasn't intentional.
1: What I was trying to do from a career standpoint is I wanted to be a teacher. So I originally had gone to a tiered trade school. I knew I didn't want to weld the rest of my life. And my mother was a nurse who became a teacher. So it sort of gave me the idea I could be a welding professional and turn to a teacher. So I started, actually started taking classes up at UPJ. And what happened, I had an opportunity at one of the local schools. The superintendent actually called me found out I, I was wanted to be a teacher, and they couldn't find a uh, certified teacher. What they were able to do at that time, in fact, you're seeing this even today, is give you an emergency teacher certificate, then you would go get the college classes you needed and get it, so that was the plan. That was a slam dunk uh, for me to get the job. All the while, what I was doing was building my father's business up so that he just had a little repair, well repair business for two reasons. One reason was I could make extra money in the summers and so uh, I couldn't see myself doing nothing. And the other part of that was staying within the trade so I could really teach the kids the latest and greatest methodology. This was my thinking. So he did $5,000 a year. I had up to maybe 35000 And this is back in 1980, uh, 1986. So lo and behold, uh, you know, I have my career path, right? And it uh, sounds like I'm getting a job. And he called me that night and he said, the board decided that one of the board members' sons did some welding because it didn't have to have a degree. They gave it to him. So I was pretty upset. So I decided that I'm going to control my own destiny and build the business up. I started doing a little bit of that in 1986. And so that was my path. And then uh, I learned very quickly yeah, you know, the economy was really bad back then. Uh, it still hadn't recovered from, you know, the $20,000, 20,000 jobs lost at Bethlehem Steel. And and I found I could not depend on local economy. I got pretty frustrated, and it was, you know, I've had in my career those uh, moments where I just, I'm not having fun, and then my the way my brain works is, why not? What do I need to do differently? So automatically it was, I, I, I just was welding in the worst conditions. You know, when you're starting, you take anything you can get. And I worked in some conditions that were, uh, you know, recovering a tank and fixing one that was had spoiled milk in it. So you can imagine that for three years. And I had uh, a septic tank. I had to go inside. It was cleaned out, but still you never never get rid of that. But uh, some pretty rough jobs and... I just felt like all I was doing was working so hard that I wasn't really doing anything and just barely making a living. So I pondered it one day and um, you know, I, anything I do, I always pray about it. It's just the way I'm built and the answer comes, it's very strange. And, and I realized I needed to, uh, you know, go out of Johnstown. The only way I'm going to do that is I need to make something. So I get some sort of manufacturing. So that changed my trajectory. We got our first opportunity with Bethlehem Steel, and at that time, my father—we finally had cancer, and you know they expect him to live around two years. And we went uh, 1986, that right before Christmas, down to Bethlehem Steel, and it was kind of intimidating for my father because he was a guy working in the mill, and here we are at the general office, and this thing, you know, was it was pretty nice. And and for me, I was just going in to start a business and try to get business from you, trying to sell manufacturing a two-car garage so I you know you really have to do a good dance to make that work and so they gave us an opportunity for about three hundred dollars and um was fine he was just a tester and then my father <clears throat> went down to Florida because the cancer got worse he was in a lot of pain and they had to do what's called a chordotomy where he had to stay awake and they had to go into the nerves in his spine and hit those nerves without any sedative any painkillings so they found the nerve that was uh, causing him the pain where his lungs were at, and then they cauterized it, which was, you can imagine how painful that was. So the operation worked, it was good, and uh, he was coming home. His birthday was February 11th, and uh, ironically, he's the same age I am now, when he passed. and He uh, was doing well, pain-free, he could eat again where he couldn't eat. My father was a big man, in fact, his nickname in the mill was Big John, he was six one and 270 pounds, and he was a strong-built man. And at that point he was around 170 pounds and, uh, but he could eat again. It was great. And my mother walking the beach, he turned 62, February 11th. I, you know, he's coming home Valentine's day, that Saturday. And my brother, John, my oldest brother knocked on the door. My wife and I were living in a trailer and, and it was like seven in the morning. I'm wondering, Oh, what are you doing here? I thought he was coming because my brother and dad were coming home and he let me know that my dad died in his sleep, which was pretty devastating. I was at the ripe old age of 25 and, Lo and behold, it took a little bit to get my father's body back from Florida, so uh, Monday I get a package in the mail, and it was a, I didn't didn't look at it, It just, you know, still pretty distraught, and Tuesday, kind of settled down a little bit, and I opened it up, and I was really going through the motions, I put it on my mother and dad's dining room table, it was kind of my office, and just sifting through it, and here, it was a blueprint to manufacture a staircase that was the go in a billet yard outside. And I remember sitting there and I just kind of staring into space. And It's like I hear this voice that sink or swim. It's almost like grow up and uh, me could do this or I'm not. And uh, that project was for Bethlehem Steel. Well, it was for Bethlehem Steel. Yes. And uh, it was for $6,280. I'll never forget that. And it was for an outside staircase in 1987. Turned the, Clocks ten years forward, and it's the staircase of the facility that I bought in nineteen ninety seven. Seems like destiny, right? So is uh, one of those moments that uh, I think everyone in business will encounter more than once. I've had, you know, that's not the only time I've encountered where you are deciding do you want to keep doing this, or you think the odds are stacked against you, and 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 you know you are not going to make it, and it's you know that intestinal. Fortitude, it's the stepping back and, and sort of compartmentalizing things and getting good people around you and getting good advice that every entrepreneur has to have to make good decisions because it's tough to own a business, tough to start a business. And if uh, you try to do it all on your own without any resources, you're probably going to fail because it's there's there's a lot there. you know, so are The resources that you may be thinking of things like business advice if people have been there you I actually latched on to a gentleman I just was kind of forward it was my personality and said look you I see what you've done it's uh, pretty impressive and uh, I'm starting a business do you mind if I call you once in a while for advice the guy was actually honored and so you just you know get out of your comfort zone right so is where you need to start and got good advice also have a good accounting firm to help you they they see all types of businesses. They can tell you some things that you wouldn't normally pick
0: up, especially on financial statements. Could we go back for a second and unpack a little bit more about the progression from getting that, that staircase job to 1997 where you buy the Bethlehem steel building. Sure. You know, there's probably a lot of steps in, in how that, how your business grew in that time frame.
1: Sure. That, and again, in business it's, I've had many defining moments and uh, I think, entrepreneur is the one that faces adversity head-on you know i had uh i went from the two-car garage i built a building it was 40 by 90 i thought oh, i'll never fill this up before it was built it, i needed more space and we went to woodville and we were ready to purchase it And here they found um, at that point there was uh, hazardous waste which honestly was not a big deal but everybody was hypersensitive and i sold my building I had nowhere to go. This building had hazardous waste in it. I had nowhere to go. And I, it almost put me out of business. And, you know, I just kept getting advice, being resourceful. And it's one of those lessons I learned that just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there is an answer. You have to keep uh, searching for the answers, getting the right people. And what I found was a uh, attorney in Harrisburg that's dealt with hazardous waste. And I asked him, can I? can can I get in this building? What's that going kind to of mean? So he told me, look, 70% of the floors were dirt, 30% concrete. Stay in the concrete. Document anything you use so you don't add to it. And then I talked to politicians, and here um, Senator Stewart at the time was introducing a bill to the state, which was the Brownsfield Act. And what they were saying is, look, the, whether somebody buys these buildings or not, they still emit whatever they're going to emit. Let's do something to mitigate it so we can reuse these buildings. So the um, the building was owned by the bank. The guy that owned, well, they they had the loan on the bank. I'm sorry. The guy that owned the uh, building was in bankruptcy. And I realized, I went to the guy who said, if I give you money, you don't get it. He goes, no. He said, I give it to the bank. So I said, uh, how's your relationship? He said, not good. So my mind started working. I said, would you give me a lease for a dollar a month for 100 years? He looked at it kind of funny, and then he smiled said, sure. I said, okay. So I had a lease. The bank couldn't do anything because if they took over the building, they would own the, waste, the hazardous waste, which would be millions of dollars. All the while, I got um, uh, uh, Senator Stewart got me a grant, and the answer was to entomb it. So it was 70% dirt floors became concrete. So I basically ended up getting a building for around $25,000, got all my floors concreted and my outdoor paid. So it just shows being a little more resourceful and uh, not giving up and figuring out uh, how to get the right answer, it flipped everything. I went from, oh my God, I might be out of business to I got a building extremely cheap and I got to uh, uh, helped change a uh, legislation. The fact that the ripe old age of 28 years old, I had to testify in front of the State Senate about what this means and how it can help businesses. So it was, uh, you know, another one of those moments that, you know, define you and either, you know, you give up or you keep leaning forward. And I obviously, through years, chose to lean forward.
0: Yeah. And uh, now that was the building that was formerly— Griffin uh, and Custer
1: Steel in Woodville.
0: As you said, your your father was employed by Bethlehem Steel, and now you're you're owning a building that used to belong to it. Which was in 1997. Now all
1: that came about was I um, outgrew Woodville Building, which is 60,000 square feet, and I needed more space. So I went uh, for one of the buildings in Lower Works, and uh, and 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 we just kept getting more and more business. So then I took the second building, waiting to buy it, and then I thought, well, what the heck, I'll take which is called the 11-inch Mill, which is a huge building, and I thought if I get it cheap enough, I could. Store things in it, and people pay to store things in it. And what happened was, it was uh, sort of sometimes you get lucky too in business, where customers would com- come in and see all this space and say, "Wow, you have a lot of capacity." And I basically said yes, and uh, they saw it as an opportunity. And uh, I we filled those buildings up very quickly. And that's the facility I ended up getting in 1997 that I built that original staircase for. Wow!
0: And it, no, that's the one in Iron Street. That's one in Iron Street,
1: and. And what, what was happening at the time uh, that uh, you had Freight Car America was outsourcing a lot of fabricating out and manufacturing. And then the real shot in the arm was GLG. GLG had an uh, aerial business where platforms where people got in it and did whatever they needed to do to go in high spaces. And serendipitously, the laws changed that you had to be strapped in after 12 feet. So you couldn't use a ladder. So guess what you needed? Aerial platforms. Well, they didn't have the ability to, to manufacture the things out of metal, and I was able to do that. And we went from, in uh, in 19, uh, 1991, I did a million dollars worth of business. By 1994, I did $8 million. And by 2000, I did $50 million. So the business grew exponentially, and now today we're we're doing about 150 million.
0: Yeah, well, are you're, you're diversified over the years. You it, it sounds like you started out with commercial, the JLG stuff. Yes, and then you got into energy and defense. Can you explain how that kind of you know grew that way?
1: Sure, the uh, the the uh, defense energy uh, defense business happened because we did what was called it was an online reverse auction, and what that means is. You bid the job, and you do it online. And then they let you know whether you're in first, second, third, fourth place. Now, you don't know who your competition is. You know what the dollars are. And you keep lowering your bid. You can lower it by 1%, 2 3%, 4 whatever you want to do. And then the last person that gets the lowest price, it shuts off. You win. And we bid a, a product. It's called a Helverson Loader. And at the time, we didn't even know it was a defense bid. Uh, I had no plans to get in defense. In fact, Congress and Martha tried to talk me into it, it was just seemed so many requirements. I just, just we just weren't ready for it. Well, lo and behold, it was a defense project, and um, company was uh, FMC down in uh, Orlando, Florida, and they came to visit us, and we still weren't the low bid. And they saw, saw our facility our capability versus the other guy, and they wanted us to do it. So we ended up working out a deal, and started building it and then when I when we got it, I thought, well, this isn't a whole lot different than commercial. I had a different perspective. Um, you know, the stuff we looked at was, you know, you're building missiles and that's that's such a different requirement. But there are things in the defense sector that really aren't a whole lot different than commercial. It's just a set of requirements that you can do. And and that's how we got into the defense business. And then it blossomed from there to uh, developed a armor uh, solution for Humvees. And for Special Forces, and that uh, was our first big contract. That was for $30 million. And as the I saw the opportunities in the defense business, uh, I needed to hire someone that really could speak the language. I was, Mirtha put me with the president of Lockheed Martin, and we were going after a uh, replacement of Humvees. And I sat in a meeting with three-star generals and executives from Lockheed Martin Here I'm this... Uh, Dumb country bunkin' from Daisy Town, and and they're using the acronyms. I I didn't I didn't know what they were saying. It was like a foreign language. I'm just shaking my head and looking and like pondering a thought. And I thought, Oh my God, I better get someone knows this. I I can learn, but I I got to learn a lot faster because business is coming fast and furious. This contract for me would have been a billion dollars. And uh, end up hiring, uh, looking for someone. I asked my brother John, who he knew, because he was in defense business since he got out of the Marine Corps. and He said, yeah, I think I know someone that want this job. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, "Uh, he's from Johnstown. I said, who at BAE is who he worked for? I don't know any of you guys that work for you because I knew a lot of them that uh, were from Johnstown. I said, who is it? He said, me. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, why do you, after 30 years, why would you come back to Johnstown? He just said, I'm tired of the rat race. I'm tired of traveling it's just, I don't enjoy, I can't have any family time. I don't want to come back. So that's what I did. I hired my brother, John, and, uh, he understood that business very well. And we were to take a really good foundation defense business and grow it. And, uh, you know, it's taking us into a whole stratosphere. Now we're building vehicles from the ground up and, uh, we're building radar systems. And, you know, I think any business needs to be diversified, but you have to do it smartly. You have to overwhelm yourself. But, uh, you know, getting defense business was really good because it really, the economy isn't a, doesn't affect defense business. It's budgetary constraints within the defense. And um, it really creates a nice steady state of business. And then your commercial business, we're in the airline industry, we got into the chemical industry, and then we got our own product lines in the oil and gas. And that took off really well. It just seems like we're in all these different sectors and renewable energy, it's like a six-cylinder engine. And not all the cylinders pop at the same time, but they create an equilibrium across the board. And today it's just the opposite. All cylinders are popping, and that's why we expanded down to North Carolina and West Virginia. And West Virginia is more because we needed a bigger labor force. Uh, North Carolina's we're we're getting our Navy C it's called Nav C qualification. And we should have that by the end of the year. And we'll be able to build components take it down there, integrate it, and be able to ship by barge uh, to the Navy uh, shipyards.
0: Yeah, that was interesting. The, the, your strategy uh, as far as choosing those locations, or you couldn't ship these huge components from your place in Johnstown, so you needed a, a waterway, and that's where North Carolina came came into play, right? right? And uh, West Virginia, you said, was because there's you just needed a— why? Yeah, why did you choose West Virginia?
1: What happened was there was a gigantic— milling machine we were buying was used, and it was in a building, and it was empty, and I, we, I, I thought to myself, we're, it's by Parkinsburg, West Virginia, and it has a pretty good labor market, pretty good vocational school, and and it was going to cost us a lot of move, and I said, well, we're ha- struggling getting people, it's a whole new labor market, we researched it, and, you know, it's, uh, it was a decent labor market, so we just left the machine there and decided to expand and be able to get, you know, additional labor to keep
0: ex- more labor to expand our business. You're, we talked about your geographic territory as far as you, where your business is located, but where do your product? How far do your products reach?
1: Around the world. Uh, we're building uh, vehicles now. that are going over to uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, we we have products that went to Germany, to uh, to Mexico, to Canada. Um, now we're going to be building a product that's going to go to Italy and Czechoslovakia and Denmark. So we part of what we've done is we've got an international uh, part of what we're doing. It's, what happened is our government uh, subsidizes, you know, like for Israel, subsidizes uh, their defense. And what happened was it used to be 25% of the content had to be U.S., when well, now it's 50%. So that's created more need for defense contractors like myself. So we went after this called for military sale market. Then I saw where NAVC, there wasn't enough industrial base. We went out to that. We're looking, we're we're going out to renewable energy where all the wind turbines, everything was built overseas. Now they want that all U.S. content. And the other target market, we just got some awards recently in the light rail industry for Metro Rail, where if it's federally, it's a federal contract, 90% of the content has to be U.S., where everything was built overseas. So, I've hit markets that they have to use U.S. content, and that's what's fueling our growth right now and in diversified markets.
0: Now, Let me go back for a moment because there's a point in time when you had the opportunity to sell uh, JWF, and wh- when was that? And Walk me through what that was like.
1: So I was a staple down at the Y. I was there a lot, working out, played basketball, lifted, whatever, ran, and enjoyed it. And, and not just, yeah, you know, we went down the Y. It was sort of like... You know, it was like a neighborhood. You know, you you knew everybody. It became uh, it's like that that is everybody knows your name. You know, and uh, really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, someday I'd like to open up my own gym. You know, sell the business before I'm forty, and I don't even have to make money out. But I thought I would enjoy that. That'd be pretty cool. Lo and behold, I had an offer in 1999. I was 39 years old. Well, it was into 2000. And I was forty. I was thirty-nine years old, and I was going to walk away with fifteen million dollars. So pretty good. And today's world that's probably thirty million. And I thought, wow, all the stars are aligning. But something didn't feel right, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And and uh, I called my uh, general manager at the time at midnight, and I was to sign the papers the next day and I was, he he listened, I think he fell asleep halfway through, but he listened to me just talk and talk, and what I realized was that I felt there were more good times behind us than in front of us. There was a lot of people that worked very hard right alongside me to build the business up, and if I sell the business what they're giving me, I think they're going to, I felt they were going to struggle, and I felt that, you know, when times are tough, if they're not uh, based out of Johnstown, Johnstown's the first one to lose. And I guess at the end of the day, it was more important to me was that I take care of the people that helped me build the business because if it goes down, I couldn't look myself in the mirror and know, yeah, I have this money, but these people are out of a job and walked in the next day and told him I can't sell the business. And from then on, I decided I will never sell the business. I know what it does to our City. I know what it, it meant to lose Bethlehem Steel and, and a cascading effect. So I just made a commitment that uh, we're going to figure out how to bring good paying jobs to our community. And we're going to do that as uh, to continue to expand our aperture in different markets and capabilities. So that, you know, what I decided to do as we kept getting in defense was to um, and other businesses to be more of an integrator. And not compete against um, things that are commoditized. So the thought process of I want to be around years from now. How do I do that? I have to move up the food chain and not compete against Mexico and China. And that's how I invoked that strategy. Where if I was just short term, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, taking a short buck and walked away. And you know, I uh, I uh, you know feel good about that. I feel good that you know my my purposes to not to see how much money I can make, but how much of a difference I can make.
0: So how many people do you, does J, JWF employ today?
1: 480 and growing.
0: So what's the next uh, chapter for J, JWF? The next chapter is
1: uh, developing more product lines. Uh, NAFC is going to be huge. There's enough business there for the next 50 years. What Electric Boat told us was, um, this was two years ago, that by now, they uh, have 4 million man-hours they have to subcontract out. And by 2025, it'll be 17 million man-hours. By 2028, it'll be 40 million man-hours. And that's just electric boats. They're one of four shipbuilders. So there's, the industrial base isn't there. In fact, the government's actually paying them to develop uh, suppliers. So this will be as much business as we want. So it's going to be exciting to see what's there, what we tackle, and how much we can do. And it, we we could be getting other locations, we meet by other companies for capacity, uh, we're formulating that strategy as we speak, and the beauty of it is we're seeing all of our employees lift their capability up, and they're taking classes. We give them over $5,000 a year for whatever they want to take to improve themselves so that... They see the long view. We did uh, you know, a long-term strategic plan. Part of that is succession planning, and they're saying there'll be jobs we don't have today that we'll need five years from now, so now they're getting the education now to be ready in five years. So it's really cool watching folks uh, jazzed about our future, going to school, which they thought they would never do, and it's changing the, uh, the look of the company from, from not just a process but an intellectual capability.
0: Again, going back to there was a time when you wanted to maybe uh, sell the business, get some cash for it, and go your own way. But I guess you've seen things unfold in the past in Johnstown where Bethlehem Steel, based in Bethlehem, PA, uh, eventually closed its Johnstown operation. Penn Traffic was another another example of a department store chain that was locally owned and then sold to a firm in New York, I think. Dairy was the other one. And and probably other examples too that you've seen and could and you describe what what you saw in Johnstown, how how things how things changed and how, how you decided I'm not gonna I'm gonna make sure that it doesn't happen in this case.
1: Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's you have to have a diversified economy. When you're one trick pony like we were at Bethlehem Steel and you lose twenty two thousand jobs and your total population of the Cambria County was hundred and sixty thousand at the time, uh that hurts. Yeah. Uh and they were high-paying jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at my own business and and uh, decided I need to be diversified for the same reason. But I also looked at this town and said it's got to be diversified. And that's why I got involved in the community. That's why, I, geez, I've been on Jari's board for now 24 years. I was chair of Jari. Uh, I was on a uh, chamber board at one time, a hospital board. And, of course, uh, started... Uh, Vision with a, a group of some very smart people that um, taking the same thought process I had in my business to the community where uh, people work together as a team. You create that culture, and you uh, people are in it for the right reason, and you create that diverse economy. We're better off having in this community, um, you know, a hundred companies that have. Ten jobs than having a thousand jobs in one company, because you diversify yourself. You're you're in different markets. You're in different types of business, and that allows the 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 us to stop the brain drain and and I think I think it's working.
0: And and one of the cool things about the company is where it's located in this and the facilities in Johnstown. This the, that would otherwise be just this carcass of the dinosaur that was Bethlehem Steel, but but there's your company, for example, and others, including some of your subcontractors that are also occupying other parts of uh, what was once Bethlehem Steel. CSC, I think it is, yes, one of your subcontractors, and you have this network of other companies that are helping to do your projects, right?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, one thing is that uh, there would be no carcass. They were going to tear the mill down and scrap it. It would have been an empty lot, the right place at the right time. It has worked and. Uh, it, I tell people this is your grandfather's steel mill. There's lasers, robots, AI technology. Where some of the largest corporations in the world come in here and uh, marvel at our process. They want to emulate some of the things. you That's pretty pretty cool when you see that. And and uh, right now, part of our growth strategy is to develop those local suppliers because I I know what it's like for me starting out. As I said earlier in a podcast, I looked at defense business. You know, made my head hurt. And what I found out, I was, okay, I'm in the wrong type of defense business. So I'm trying to help, uh, you know, CSC. I'm also trying to help MJ Daniels, helping uh, Dell Oxygen, helping uh, um, uh, J.B. Weld uh, and numerous companies uh, in Altoona, LaRook. I want to build a, a supply base here as part of a strategy to grow the business because it's going to be hard for me to continue to do it just within my company. So if I can help local companies build their business up, teach them what I know,
0: and help them grow, everybody benefits and the town benefits. you switching gears to more, uh, more, uh, more personal questions. What, what uh, is the, the legacy that you see yourself having and wanting to leave whenever you retire or whenever uh, you're gone? My kids, they're involved, and some of my
1: nephews are involved. Uh, they understand the heart of the organization. Uh, I, people ask me, what's your proudest moment? And it's kind of not what you would think. 2011, right in the middle of the great recession, we lost a lot of business and it was devastating. I, you know, when a company starts laying people off, there's some people that, okay, they're just not working out anyway. And then you start getting good people and then you really cut a media organization. We were cutting into the media organization and we probably laid a third of our workforce off. And man, these are, it was nobody's fault. And I take that to heart. When I, if we lay someone off, I look at his failure on my part and I take that very seriously. And what I did was I brought all those employees back, put them in a room, put my executive team around them and I said, these are the people we laid off. These are the families, because you only not lay a person off, right? You lay a family off because it affects the family. And I knew that person with my father, we got laid off at Bethlehem. And it's devastating, and they feel hopeless. And I wanted them to know that we were going to fight hard every day to get them back. And I made a decision. We were actually break even, maybe losing money. I made a decision to pay their benefits while they were off. And my thoughts were, you know what? if that takes the company down, so be it, but these people are gonna have benefits. And I wanted my executives to see people, not a number, not just a name, and get that commitment. And you could just see the room change, where the, they had their heads down, you could see that heartache. And when I announced what I was doing, so they sat back, their shoulders come back, you just watch the body language change, and, and and why that's important from a legacy standpoint, my kids know about that. And it it's, I think, when you're a leader, it's not what you do when things are good. It's what do you do when things are bad, when your back's against the wall? You talk about values. Are your values there when your back's against the wall? Are your values only there when it's convenient or it's easy to do? It's easy to give someone money when you have it. It's a little bit different when you don't have much. And... I tell that story, they know that story, and uh because I want that legacy to be that you're always gonna do the right thing. You know, put the employees first when push comes to shove and do the right thing when your back's against the wall. What's the
0: most rewarding part about your business? I think the most rewarding
1: thing is, you know, it's it's evolved. You know, I'd say in the beginning it was just building a business and it was just you got this endorphin rush when you went after a customer and you got awarded a project. That was just, you feel like you took the hill right. And then it evolved into, um, you know, bringing jobs to this valley. And now it's uh, all that, plus seeing my kids involved, seeing them have the same passion, the same heart for the employees, I watch my kids do things they don't even know I know they did that was the right thing to do to them for an employee. So I know they get it. And uh, giving back to the community. I think it's uh, I think it to me that's very rewarding when you uh, when uh, you help your community and I think, you know Johnstown's the best place to open up a business. It really is. People say, You gotta put your business anywhere. Yeah, but I wouldn't have been as successful. This community rallies around you and this is a place to start and grow a business there's so many resources here between jari and what vision does and what the chamber does and the redevelopment authority you have so many resources here to help you with your business uh i don't think you'll see that in any other town in fact i'm in other locations and i don't see that so i think the rewarding part of it is um all the above and i guess my best day is when someone comes to work for me and they're more than they thought they could be. That's my best day. Because I think when you empower people and you give them a platform to succeed and you get them to believe in themselves, they uh, they grow beyond what they thought they could be. And I guess they do that because that's that was me. That this is not where I was, the direction I thought I was going from teacher to a $150 million company. And you know, you become a leader in a community and it's not anything. If someone had told me that, I would have laughed at them, you know, 20 years ago, even. Uh, So you just, I went the same thing for my employees that the benefit I have of being willing to thought you'd be because, you know, people encouraged you. And that's what this town has done consistently.
0: Thanks for listening. Until next time, check out other Tribune Democrat podcasts at tribdem.com or platforms, including Spotify.